You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where finding a song that fits in with the title of the comic can lead to some odd choices. The world's begun to look her age I'll tell you why she's lined and gray We read of hate on every page Then turn our backs and walk away Why? Can't we stand Join hand in hand Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name's Sean Engel, and what I do on the show if you didn't already know before, is cover the Green Lantern comics, starting with cover date June 1990 and ending with cover date November 2004, all the while putting a special emphasis on my two favorite characters, Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. And this time out, we get a break from those two characters. In fact, neither of them are in the book that we're going to be covering today, Green Lantern number 156, but there is a Green Lantern in it, and it's the return of Green Lantern John Stewart. In an interesting tale where he goes around New York City and rights wrongs. Nothing really to do about it. In fact, it's in the end, it's just kind of a placeholder tale, allowing Kyle to go off and do his little hero's quest or get his mind straight off in the universe after the uh, events of uh, last couple of issues with Terry Berg. So it's a reintroduction for John into the Green Lantern mythos. It's a chance for John to get back on his feet, figuratively and literally, in the uh, Green Lantern book, and it's probably a sort of backdoor way to get him as a member of the Justice League as well. Uh, it's not a great issue, but it's not horrible by any means. I know that's not really burying the lead, but that's what it is. Plus, we're also going to be taking a look at some letters from the wonderful listeners. Uh, it's been a while since I've read them, so I'd like to get to those, and some promos for some podcasts that you should be listening to as well. So, once I get back from this podcast promo break, I will get started into coverage of letters, then Green Lantern, number 156. See you on the other side, folks. Quarks, customer satisfaction is our primary concern. I'd say we just found our way into a wormhole. I'm Kira Norris. Lieutenant Commander Worf reporting for duty, sir. You're the best crew any captain ever had. This may be the last time we're all together. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet one of our most important posts. It is quite simply, Commander. The journey you have always been destined to take. 
sensors are not functioning. You've lost all contact with the space station. What the hell is happening out there? Shields up. Damage report. Battle stations. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Listen to the prophets. A Deep Space Nine Two True Freaks presentation with Sean Engel and Andrew Layla. And now with 100% more Paul Spataro. Hey Paul, what's up? Ah, not much. What's going on? I'm I'm just a little confused lately. I yeah. What else is new? Well, you know, m- more than usual. I tried to go to get the shows that we just put up, and I was having problems finding them. Well, we having trouble finding. Well, I couldn't find Back to the Bins. I couldn't find Avengers Spotlight. Of course, you can only find those when I actually edit them. <clears throat> and um, <laughs> oh, you took but, words you know, right out of mouth. They're, they're on the feed, Bill. Yeah, I know. That's where I went. I went to the feed, but they weren't there. You, no, you got to go to the feed. You got to go to the Back to the Bins feed. The Back to the Bins feed? What's yeah, that? Back to the Bins feed. You got to go to iTunes, you look for, look up Back to the Bins, and you subscribe to the Back to the Bins feed. But I went to Two True Freaks. Yeah, we're on that feed too. What? Where? On the feed. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you're saying that we're on... All right, so if I wanted to go find the shows that we've done, I'm going to go on to iTunes, and I'm going to click on Back to the Bins... And I'll find Back to the Binge and Avengers Spotlight in the feed. Exactly. I don't even know what I'm talking about! Bill, you go to the feed. You subscribe to the show. You subscribe to whichever show you want. And then you get it. It's that simple. You just gotta go to the feed. What show do I want? Back to the Binge. Where? And Avengers Spotlight. Oh, I'm so confused. They're on iTunes. They're on 2TrueFreaks.com. You want them, uh, you get them. They're you all got them? To you. All the uh, shows are there. They're still all available, Bill. All right, on the so... Feed. The feed. If you say feed one more time, I'm going to break your arm. Uh, Scott, could you tell him... Hey, man, don't don't drag me into this, because uh, it's no skin off my ass. I'm on all the feeds. <laughs> Bastard. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The short box showcase. But then again, may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this Ultra... Of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky 
or short box showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. It started as an idea, a flicker. Now with a simple voice email to the Superman and the Bronze Age podcast, that flicker has become a flame. Now, Russell, you're ready to start a podcast. Yep, you're ready to go. Yes, start it, and then and then we can email you. Whoa. And Russell has been, you know, the most consistent emailer. I think it's time that he does start a show. DC Comics presents. You know, after Dave's done, and I mean, you're not covering every, every issue, so he could do all of them. I would highly recommend that, actually. That would be awesome. So there you go, Russell. Go for it. I can't wait to hear his reaction to this. this <laughs> well, boys, here's your response. The DC Comics Presents show, hosted by me, Russell Bragg. On each episode, I will cover one issue of DC Comics Presents, in publishing order, until I reach the end of the series. I will also be covering all four annuals. Plus, I will be doing a character spotlight on each of Superman's guest stars, and I will be going to the spinner rack to see what other comic books were available. Join me each episode of... The DC Comics Presents Show. Please go to the show's website at www.dccpshow.com for more information. That's DCCPSHOW. And we're back. And I hope you enjoyed those promos. Some of those are, well, all of those are shows that I listen to. And actually, one of them is a show that I also co-star on. It's Listen to the Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. It's a show where we're covering all the episodes of Deep Space Nine from the beginning. And we're having a really great time with it. It's not only me, but it's two great podcasters accompanying me. It's uh, Mr. Paul Spataro, which you may know from Back to the Bins. He's He's been heading that up and been doing a great job with it. And it's also Andrew Layla from Hey Kids Comics and the Palace of Glittering Delight. It's a, just a barrel of fun working with those guys, and I cannot tell you how much fun it is for me to get together with them you know, every couple of weeks and talk about Deep Space Nine, which is, for me, one of the best Star Trek series after the original series that just kind of gets a bad rep for whatever reason. And I've been enjoying talking about it, and I hope that you'll uh, take a listen to the show because... And maybe even reevaluate Deep Space Nine because it's out there for your viewing. If you've got Netflix, all the episodes are there, and we've been watching them, just loving them. So go check it out. Listen to The Prophets. Great show. But one thing that I'd like you to check out right now is some of the listener email. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and this time out, our first email comes from my good friend over at Earth Destruction Directive and the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, both of which you can find at Future Freaks, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. Luke writes in with the title of the email, 150, and he says, Sean, I just want to drop you a real quick note about episode 150, where you and Miss Emily covered GL150 and the end of the Ion storyline for Kyle. First off, let me say congrats on hitting that lofty number of 150. Well, thanks, Luke. I, you know, I really don't take into account that I've done this many episodes, especially when I'm on the Tutor Freaks website and they're coming up on 500 episodes pretty soon. So 150 really isn't all that much, but thank you nonetheless for the, for the, uh, congratulatory note, I guess. I really appreciate it. It's, it's just doing what I enjoy. And it's the same thing that you do with the destruction directive and you will be up to 150. I doubt in no time, sir. 
Anyway, he continues saying, you guys had a great discussion about superheroes with loving, involved fathers in their life. And as a father of three young children who finds himself drawn to studies about the important father in a child's development, as well as modern fathering theory and techniques, I too like this trait when it rarely gets brought out. It's much easier to have a father or both parents be shuffled off the buffalo and be a source of angst for our hero rather than a part of the support system. So I appreciated the discussion of this topic. And although I am, I'm glad in this story that Kyle reconnected with his father, I'm also kind of glad that Kyle does have at least one living parent. As referenced so often in comics, there are so many people who have lost their parents, uh, major heroes. Specifically, you look to Batman, you can look to... Um, Hal Jordan as a Green Lantern, him losing his parents. You can look to uh, Robin, the uh, the Dick Grayson Robin losing his parents, and even currently uh, the well as uh, I don't know specifically if this has happened in the New Fifty Two, but Tim Drake as well, his parents are no longer around, and that's a great resource for them to mine areas of angst or or uh, depression with the uh, heroes, but. It is nice every once in a while to see a character who does have a good family and a good support group with them. And I'm I'm glad you touched on that, and I'm glad that we were able to, we were able to touch on that in the uh, in the uh, discussion that we had on issue 150. Going back to Luke's email, he says, strangely enough, the other side of that coin, the hero as a loving, involved father, has been on my mind lately. As the all-time single greatest character displaying that trait, has recently got a handsome omnibus release in his of his four color adventures. He is the terror that flaps in the night. He is the piece of tape that gets caught in the cover of your comic book. Yes, that's right, I'm talking about the one and only Darkwing Duck. I was a fan from, of this from day one, but now as a father myself, the fact that DW's life is split between defending the citizens of St. Canard and looking after and rearing his adopted daughter Goslin makes the character all the more awesome. Always, I enjoyed your coverage of the Ion story with the discussions that arose from the choices Kyle made and the way Winnick and Eaglesham and company presented them to the reader. Now, I know I've said this before, but once more, looking forward to wherever Kyle rings off to from here, Luke. Luke, thank you for talking about Darkwing Duck. That, it's been, it's been brought up recently with uh, the discussion that there's going to be a brand new revamp of the series of DuckTales coming out for, I don't know whether Disney's going to be releasing it. Uh, specifically on the Disney Channel or Disney XD, but I'd love to see a revamp of Darkwing Duck. And now thinking about it as a father myself, it's interesting how how that character was how that character was different from your average sort of superhero archetype at the time. He was a father figure who had to take care of a child somewhat in the manner of Batman taking care of Dick Grayson as Ward, but he never he never brought Goslin in to be his sidekick or anything. For her, he was always a parent, and I'm trying to remember if in the show if Goslin actually knew that he was Darkwing. I'm certain he did. It's been so long since I've watched those shows. But it's one of those things that I think and I talked about this uh and I don't know whether this will be released at the point of this time. It might be a little while later, but I recently talked with Andy and Paul on a palace of glittering delights about the odd number star treks. And one of the things I talked about was generations and how captain Picard's feeling of 
not being a parent at the time resonated more with me than when I watched it originally because at the time I didn't have any emotions about being a parent and uh, having children and the feelings that Picard showed in that picture. So going back and watching Darkwing Duck and uh, coming at it from a different mindset that I did when it was actually airing, I guess, during the the, the early 90s would uh, give me a different feel for it. And I, I, I'm I'm looking forward. You you directed me to the omnibus of this. I'm gonna have to go pick that up because it sounds like a bunch of fun. And you know, even though it's probably not in the Karl Barks style, I'm certain it's got to be interesting writing and just just a fun read. So, thank you, Luke, for writing in, and thank you for uh, getting me to buy more comics. Uh, I'm certain my wife appreciates that as well. Our next letter comes from Sam, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Sam. Savaris, it's T-Z-I-A-V-A-R-A-S. So, Savaris, I'm hoping that's right. Anyway, Sam writes in with the title of his email, Green Lantern number 150, an awesome review for an awesome issue. Sam says, long-time listener, first-time caller, or writer from the great white north oh cool i've got another i've got another listener from canada I, the, you're gonna have to meet up with uh with scott davis and you know have a uh cross-country party if it, chances are you you're in completely non-adjacent areas of canada and would would never i'm thinking of canada's like you know oklahoma where everyone knows everyone so there you go Sorry, Sam. Uh, the email goes, I've been listening to your podcast for a while, and it's great to be able to be listening to a podcast to listen to a podcast of my favorite character. I've been collecting Green Lantern comics and original art for years, and your podcast makes for an interesting drive to work. Just like you, Kyle Rayner is my favorite Green Lantern. Oh, that's cool. I, I know there are a lot of people out there who like Kyle specifically because they caught him in this era, and it's good to find out that there are more people out that because... Over the past decade or so, it's all been Hal, Hal, Hal. And as interesting as Jeff Johns has made Hal, I've always gravitated to Kyle and specifically Guy. I was a little bit more Guy myself, but I, I love Kyle as well. And I think they're just kind of very underrated. But I'm glad they're at least getting, or at least for a while, got some spotlight next to Hal. Going back to the email, he says, Just a quick FYI. You made a comment about the choice of title that Ganthet made after the Guardians were revived. You mentioned, unless my memory is hazy, that you were surprised he didn't choose the title Elder. The title he chose, Papu, is Greek for a grandfather, and grandfathers in Greek culture were elders, so in a way he did choose the title of that elder. Well, that, that's interesting. I, di I, I didn't exactly know that the translation of that word to uh, Greek would have actually related to the word Elder. Maybe that was one of those things that uh, Judd Winnick knew something about, and he was actually putting it in there to make it a sort of subtle reference. But I like that. I think it, I think it works more in the familial way, as it gives him more of a, uh, like I said, a more familial feel. It gives him more humanized feel rather than the sort of stoic, um, all-knowing, omnipotent beings that the Guardians were. And it makes you believe that Ganthet's going to be a more caring and more compassionate guardian than the previous ones. So I like that. But I also like that it also does tie into the fact that he is the, their elder. So there's a nice balance there. Going back, he says, I wonder if it was intentional on Jen Whittick's part, considering the guardians are blue and white and the colors of the Greek flag are blue and white. 
again, that's that's another reference I wouldn't have got. But yeah, that could be it. I I don't think I'd I wouldn't put it past Judd Winning. I don't think he's like as clever a writer as some maybe, but I don't think that uh, you know he may put in some little subtle hints in there that that we wouldn't be expecting from him. Uh, you know, a lot of writers from this era just seem very. I don't want to say shallow, but I just want to say not as immersed as some other writers. You look at people, uh, you look at other writers, and they seem to have very, to put in a lot of interesting Easter eggs and put in a lot of philosophy and put in a lot of subtle hints to other things in their books. And I'm not certain if Judd Winnick is one of those people, but I think in this point he might have been trying. So that's a good catch. If it, And if it's not specifically in there, it is, it is a nice coincidence. Anyway, Sam finishes up the email. Until time, make me just one of the guys, Sam. Well, Sam, thank you for writing in. I hope you're still listening to the show. I really appreciate you writing in. And if you get something else about this, and if you catch anything that you think uh, Winnick has done that uh, seems, well, seems that he's putting some sort of subtle bit of Easter eggery in there, let me know about it. I'd love to know because sometimes even I don't catch that kind of stuff. But that's going to be it for email this time. Thank you both Sam and Luke for writing in. I really appreciate it. And if you'd like to write into the show, the email address is just one of the guys at gmail.com. Love to read your email in another episode. But for right now, let's go ahead and get into our coverage of Green Lantern number 156. Green Lantern number 156 was cover dated January 2003 and released on November 13th of 2002. It had a cover price of 225 US and 375 Canada and the title of Walking Tall. The writer was Judd Winnick, penciler was Dale Eaglesham, inker was Rodney Ramos, the colorist was Moose Bowman, the letterer was Kurt Hathaway, the assistant editor was Morgan Dontonville, and the editor was Bob Schreck, while the cover art was by Ariel Olivetti. New York City, 3.26 a.m. On a loading dock near the city's harbor, a group of nervous criminals attempt to dispose of numerous shipping crates that is deemed too hot to handle. One of the crook yells for the crane operator to just dump the crates in the water, which concerns another of the crew. The hoodlum says he was never brought on to murder people, and the boss tells him that business is business, and this is just them cutting their losses but their troubles might be greater than getting rid of a few suspicious shipping crates as Green Lantern John Stewart makes the scene, retrieving the crates and subduing the crooks. As GL calls the Port Authority to come pick up the criminals, one of them yells for John to open the crates and hurry. Puzzled by the demand, John pops open the shipping containers and finds dozens of starving, near-death people all shipped over as human traffic. Sometime later, John is having a chat and game of battle chess with Golden Age Green Lantern Alan Scott. John says he could have killed the thugs for what they did, but he knows that's not the way that heroes operate. As John relates the death toll of the trafficked people, Alan ponders why Kyle and Jenny would leave Earth. John thinks it's because Kyle felt betrayed and he just needs to get his head back in the game, and Alan agrees. But their chess match is broken up by the sound of a nearby car chase and shooting. The heroes spring in action and quickly subdue the punks, leaving them in police custody. Impressed by how well he's adapting to being Green Lantern again, Alan asks John if he was thinking about taking Kyle's place on the Justice League while he's away, and John likes the idea, 
but says that they need to ask him first. Alan asks John if he'd like to join him and some old capes for dinner, but John declines, saying that he's got some business to attend to. And that business is visiting Ira Sinril, better known as Fatality, at the Antarctic location of the slab. Entering the jail cell, John tells Fatality thank you, because if she hadn't used her magic weakness finding ability, he never would be up and walking like he is. Fatality says she doesn't need his thanks. The gesture was completely selfish. You see, she wanted to make sure that John was completely healthy, so that when she escaped from prison, she could have the honor of killing a powerful warrior and not a crippled weakling. Unfazed by the admission, John says his goodbyes, and Fatality says that she'll see him soon. Later that night, John finishes up his patrol by rescuing a young worker from the garment district from a pack of lowlifes. Telling the victim that she'll probably need to file some reports with the police, John is asked by the girl just who he is. He says that he is a Green Lantern, and the girl comments that she thought that he was some other dude. John tells her that there was another person who went by Green Lantern, but he's filling in for him. Cool, the girl says, and John replies, Yeah, I think it's pretty cool too. This was another decent story, focusing in on Jon Stewart with a bit of a real-world drama added in to give it a little bit of grit. Since I wasn't reading many, or for that fact, any comics at this time, I think this might have been sort of a backdoor way to get Jon in as Green Lantern for the JLA book. And since the character had been established as the premier Green Lantern in the Justice League animated series, getting him back into the comics was really a no-brainer. I'm also glad that they didn't overlook the character of Fatality and her hatred of John, but I still have to wonder what her turn was to make her a love interest for John in the current Green Lantern series. Well, up until recently, I guess. It's interesting to see what happened with Fatality, because she still seems to be holding a big-time grudge against John, and up until recently in the Green Lantern series, she was a love interest for him. I think it had something to do, probably, with the sort of emerald, or not the emerald, the sort of violet energy of love that the star sapphires imbued her with that kind of brainwashed her in some way to thinking that she was okay with John. But that's neither here nor there right now. Let's go ahead and look at the book as in the entirety and take it page by page for what we're doing now. The cover, the artist credited to Ariel Olivetti. I don't know who this person is. And although the cover looks okay, I think John looks really good. The perspective is nice. But when you look at the child or whatever John is carrying, that really starts to creep you out. The face on the child is really off. It looks like a... It looks just disproportioned. The arm looks way too long. The face looks way too flat. The child might have a sort of Asian look, or it might be a gray alien. It's just an uncomfortable-looking cover. That's all I want to say about that. 
moving into the book, I don't really have that many notes. Um, most of my notes cover the first part of the book from like pages one to ten. But this is all about establishing John as Green Lantern and these thugs who were involved in human trafficking. It's kind of a disturbing story that just seems to be in some way kind of filler to get John back as GL. I don't mind that Judd Winnick is tackling real-world issues as human trafficking was kind of an issue at this point in time, uh, especially between you know us and uh, Asian countries and human trafficking was going on between uh, the United States and Mexico as well. So this was a topic that was pretty much a hot button here, but it just seems this sort of throwaway thing to give something for John to have dramatic to deal with, something real world. Not that it takes me out of the story or it adds to anything. It's just kind of an odd take for it. And I don't know if it's followed up any on in the book or whether it's just dropped here, but it is what it is. And throughout these pages, I think Eaglesham does a really good job of uh, rendering John Stewart, except for the uh, two-page splash on pages five and six where he's got John in just a really ridiculous splits-type pose. I understand it's trying to cover two pages, but he could do that with the constructs and John standing there with his legs literally almost in a splits position is just kind of odd. Pages 11 through 13, as John is talking with Alan here, they're playing a game of chess, but it's ring construct battle chess. And if you remember from, God, this might even be the late 80s, there was a game called Battle Chess where it was essentially a game of chess, but when your characters moved from one position to another and engaged either knights or pawns or whatever piece on the table, there were different animations that were kind of silly going on with it. And it kind of seems like they're trying to mimic that here in this game. I don't know if this is supposed to be a reference to something or if this is supposed to just look cool, but it is there and it's just, it's another thing that I don't know if it's trying to say something or not. It's just there. Pages 14 and 15, in stark contrast to the hoodlums of the 80s and 90s who had more of a punk look, in fact, most of them would have shaved heads and mohawks, the hoodlums of the 2000s have a more ghetto, gangbanger-type look. It's almost like they walked off the set of a Spike Lee movie. its I don't think it's any more stereotypical than what we'd get in the 80s, but it's just interesting to see how thugs from one era progressed into another era. In in the 80s and such, we thought as punks as being the people who would be the ones committing crimes or being reckless and endangering people. And nowadays, or at least in the 2000s, it was considering more sort of Hispanic, uh, African-American, black-oriented, youth culture, gangbang type people. So take that for whatever you will. Page 16, I think this page leads more credence that John was being eyed for JLA membership in the book, as Alan asked him if he's thought about joining. I'm not certain exactly when John Stewart joined the JLA, but around this time, I checked on Mike's Amazing World, he did start appearing in the JLA, so maybe this is when he finally moved over to that, which, which makes sense because at this time, he was also featured very heavily in the Justice League animated series, so... John Stewart's star was pretty much rising, so 
putting him in the JLA comic was pretty much a no-brainer at the time. Page 18, the artwork gets kind of sketchy here, with, especially on the fourth panel of this page, John just looks kind of wonky, and the shading on his face looks off. It's like Eagle Sham kind of phoned it in for these last few pages. It's the same art team as e of Eagle Sham and Ramus doing it, but there are some pages in here where it just looks kind of out of place, and this is one of them. And then moving on to page 20, we get the resolution of why Fatality helped John out to figure out what was going on with his supposed paralysis. It's because she actually wanted to fight him as a full-on, non-crippled person and as a functioning Green Lantern hero. It supposedly is going to make her feel better when she kills him that he's not a weakling, so I guess that's nice, or that I'd ever follows through, I guess we'll have to find out in later books. Page 21, again, the thugs who are trying to rob this person are very much the stereotypical gangbangers with the with the toques and the sort of fisherman hats and the uh, sleeveless wife-beater shirts and the baggy pants. It's all very stereotypical, but I don't think it's any more stereotypical than, like I said, the punks of the 1980s being the bad guys for the comic, so it's just the progression of the time. But as the story finishes off, on the end, it's just kind of a lackluster ending. It's John rescuing this girl and saying, thanks, I really think it's cool to be Green Lantern. This didn't feel like an inventory story, but it didn't really feel like it played all that much into the overall arc of the, arc of the Green Lantern story at this time. It was nice to see John, John Stewart back as Green Lantern, but I don't think this story really did anything to progress the overall story of the Green Lantern. It just kind of seems like a backdoor pilot to get John Stewart into the JLA, which, in my estimation, isn't a bad thing, but it, like I said, it doesn't advance the story all that much. So that's what you get for the comic. Every once in a while, it's just kind of a throwaway issue, and this might be one of them. However, let's see if some of the ads in here are throwaway ads. I'm probably certain some of them are. Starting with the front and side cover, it's not that much of a throwaway ad. It's for the Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Rings extended DVD edition, which has the special edition with the, oh, how many minutes? Uh, over 30 minutes of new and extended scenes on like four different discs and you can also get a collector's DVD set, which has the two statues of the uh, of the various kings that the uh, float to the river on. I can't remember them. I'm not that. <laughs> it's been so long since I've watched Fellowship of the Ring, but uh, Fellowship of the Ring DVDs kind of cool. A few more pages in, we get an advertisement for Batman Dark Tomorrow. It's a PlayStation Two, Xbox, and GameCube game, and because they show absolutely no gameplay on it, I can only imagine that this was really not all that great a video game. As sometimes Batman video games are. If anyone knows any different, please email in and let me know how this game was. A few more pages after that, we get an advertisement for Metroid Prime. I guess video games are the uh, ads de jour of this time. Uh, this one was actually, from what I heard, a pretty good adaptation of the Metroid game. It was more of a first-person shooter than the uh, side-scroller aspect of it. And for the uh, GameCube, the graphics look pretty good. And again, another video game after that, Haven. 
it begins as a dream that gets real. I don't know if this is supposed to be a sort of it's it's sort of RPG type game. Again, I've never heard of it. It's available for the Xbox, Game Boy Advance, GameCube, and PlayStation 2, so there's that again. Then after that, because of the popularity of the Star Wars movies, we've got a game for Star Wars The Clone Wars. It's got some Star Wars clone troopers flying around, I guess, on... Oh, what was the name of the planet that the bugs were on? I can't remember. I'm horrible with those names, but I guess you get to play a clone trooper and shoot things. Star Wars, there you go. Uh, game, uh, another advertisement for Magic the Gathering cards, free magic for a year, ten or $1,000 scholarship, premium cards. I guess if you win the Super Series of Magic the Gathering, you can win a scholarship. So who says uh, card games can't uh, progress you in your education? There you go. After that, there's another advertisement for Mech Assault, which I guess is a Mech Warrior game where you get together your giant walking armored mech things and shoot lasers at other people. It's from FASA Studio, which uh, is the, I guess that's the uh, actual studio that came out with the board game Battlex. So obviously they, or Battletech or Robotech, well not Robotech, but um, Mech Warrior. That's what I'm thinking of. So obviously they have some input on the game. So it, it looks kind of fun. There's a bunch of explodey bits. That's neat. After that, again, another video game ad for Tekken 4 with a picture of someone with obviously very spiky hair and their silhouette being smashed into a wall. And then you've got some images of uh, them fighting in the video game on the side. Yeah. Then uh, in the middle of the book, we've got a special sneak preview of the Ed Brubaker, Greg Rucka, Michael Lark uh, comic book series, Gotham Central, which I've heard is really good. And they've got a sort of preview of some of the art in here it it's it's nice looking art it's very it's very noirish unfortunately like i said at the time i wasn't reading comics so i don't know all that much about gotham central but i've heard that it's a good book and you know it's ed brubaker and greg rucka how can you go wrong with that plus uh, along the way in the middle of this preview they've got some advertisement for justice league is this injustice for all which is a video game for the Game Boy Advance, where I guess you get to play as the Justice League animated characters. Kind of neat. Then after that, there's an advertisement for Superman the Man of Steel video game, only on Xbox. It looks like you fly around as Superman and shows you doing various things, like flying and using your freeze breath. And I don't know who he's fighting. It looks like maybe Brainiac, but he's using heat vision on him. So I don't know about this game. I had never heard of this. I've heard of Superman 64, which was awful. And of course, I've heard about the Death and Return of Superman, which was on the SNES, which I thought was, I heard was pretty good. So after that, you get another advertisement for Superman and JLA sticker books from DK Publishing. So that's something. And then again, we get another advertisement, this time not for Mech Warrior, but this one from Mech Warrior Mercenaries, which is another robot shoot 'em up game. There you go. And more advertisement. Uh, every advertisement here is for video games. Uh, I so miss Twinkie ads. This one says, Unleash the Power of Three in a Studying New RPG. It's Sukoden. It's anime 
Asian stereotype people with eye patches and girls with ponytails and guys with long hair and the flowy locks in the front and kids with spiky hair and helmets. And it's, it's all anime stuff. So if you like that, maybe you played this game. I have no idea. Then finally, an ad for something that isn't a video game. This is for Verb. It says it's got a picture of a kid doing various things like playing basketball, soccer, uh, playing a guitar, rock climbing, and snowboarding. And it says be an action figure. I guess it's uh, just one of those sort of public service announcements to basically tell kids to get off their butts and go out and do something. So there's that. Uh, and then another video game. This one for sneakers, which I guess is a game where you play a mouse that sneaks around and finds various things to do and eat cheese and stuff. Again, I think this is a game that I think no one got. It's specifically for the Xbox, so that tells you how desperate the Xbox was. And then, if we didn't have enough uh, giant robots fighting, this time we've got, instead of uh, MechWarrior, we've got Robotech. Robotech Battlecry. It's a game for all the systems where instead of playing a giant mech warrior robot, you play a giant Robotech warrior robot, which is completely different and vastly unsimilar, supposedly. Oh, but here's a good one. This is uh, Godzilla Destroy All Monsters. I, I think, is this Megalon? I, I think this might be Megalon on there, because it's got the sort of pointy head thing on top and the, the pincher-type mouse and the... Uh, the spikes on his hand, that might be Megalon that's being advertised front and center on here. But I think Luke Giaconetti has talked about this, and this is for the uh, GameCube, and it looks like a fun game. It's a four-player fighting game. Earth's greatest city is becoming battlefields for the legendary monsters. That sounds like a lot of fun. I see one where it looks like King Ghidorah is fighting one. We've got Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. Rodan looks like he's in here. This looks like it'd be a fun game. This might be a game that I would I would enjoy playing. I wonder if I can find that for my GameCube, because I think you can play the GameCube games on the Wii or the Wii U. Might have to track that down. But then, man, there was, I'm talking more about ads than I am talking about the comic itself. There are more ads in here. And another two-page Star Wars ad, and this was for Star Wars Bounty Hunter, which has Jango Fett, who has uh, basically mounted heads of various different aliens that he's killed on the wall. I wouldn't think that you would want to mount heads on the wall. I think you'd get more money back if you brought him back alive, but I guess whatever. So Django Fett for the GameCube, PS2, and I don't know, it doesn't say the Xbox, but yeah, Bounty Hunter, fun. And then we get an ad for Eight-Legged Freaks, the David Arquette starring role where... <sighs> Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich give us a movie about giant spiders. Never saw it. Don't think I ever will. Uh, the back outside, the back inside cover is another advertisement for Starburst. So finally, an advertisement, you know, about sugary candy rather than video games. And the back outside cover is an advertisement for Doctor Muto, a game for the for all the systems. Then again, I think went absolutely nowhere. They were just throwing games at the wall at this point in time. So there you go. More ads this time than I think you could shake a cat at. And 
just kind of an average issue. Hmm. Hopefully next time out we'll get a little bit something better in Green Lantern number 157, but you'll just have to wait until next time to find out what that is. And hopefully you will do that and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, where I, of course, will be covering that. Until then, everyone, I hope you have a good week, and we'll talk to you next time. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Inkle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respected copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys podcast, and you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well, and now you can find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonza Core contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander. The opening music for the Today Show was Johnny Mathis and his song Walking Tall from the movie of the same name. Yeah, I kind of stretched to get this song out for this podcast. Anyhow, if you'd like to buy the song or probably something other than the song, which I can't see why you'd want to buy the song at all. Really, Johnny Mathis? I don't get it. I would suggest you go to twotruefreaks.com. Not because they sell Johnny Mathis songs or endorse Johnny Mathis in any way, but because they have a link to Amazon.com. If you use the link at Tutor Freaks to go to Amazon.com and buy something there, a little bit of your purchase price that you make to Amazon.com will get shunted back to the Tutor Freaks website. Anything you buy won't be any more than the actual price. Amazon just gives a little kickback to us to make sure that the Tutor Freaks website keeps up and running. So anytime you're thinking about buying music, hopefully not Johnny Mathis, for your own personal library, make sure you use the link to Amazon at twotruefreaks.com.